This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. shares, by the way, jumping the most in six years. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. This after the U.S. cable giant proved uh, that at uh, its broadband business still has a lot left to go. And in doing so, as our Tara LaChapelle writes, the cable giant may want to write a thank you note to Netflix. Tara is deals columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Story um, Studio. <laughs> story Studio. Yeah, it might be that too. Um, good story. Thank you. So tell us about what you wrote about. So Comcast shares, as you, as you said, are up today. Uh, they released their, released their year-end results. And the trend we've been seeing in these is that their broadband b- business is still growing very quickly, which is kind of surprising. I mean, we all think of Comcast and their rivals like Charter as yeah. cable TV companies, which we know is a dying business thanks to companies like Netflix. But the irony in this is as Netflix has sort of taken a bite out of these cable businesses, it's been a boon for their internet business because you need an, an, an internet internet connection in order to watch Netflix, right? You need to be able to stream these different apps. So it's been great for Comcast, especially. They've added more than a million residential high-speed internet customers in the past year. And that growth could start to slow a little, but I think for the most part, people are still very optimistic about how lucrative this internet business is going to be for them in this new age of streaming. Well, how much are you streaming? At a home? ton. I mean, and, right? and they have designed it. I mean, increasingly the interfaces, I feel like, are designed to get you right in to your streaming services. They, it, it's almost like they're less worried <laughs> at this point about making sure you're watching cable. Yeah, I think they're really embracing this. They see it as the future. And it's funny because Comcast and NBC Universal, which they own, have been late to the streaming wars in terms of launching their own app to compete with Netflix. So we already know that Disney is going to launch one later this year. AT&T has some sort of new confusing app coming out that's going to compete with Netflix as well. But Comcast only announced the other day that they're going to launch something in 2020. So that seems like quite a ways away. It's a little bit nebulous of what their strategy is around that. And I think it's because they're really so focused on this internet side of the business and they're being very cautious about cannibalizing the cable business because it does still make a lot of money for them. What kind of pricing power do they have in terms of streaming and so on? For so, customers, I'm just thinking about. It's interesting because with internet, of course, they have a ton of uh, pricing power because these companies have all consolidated so much. And when they did so, so much of the focus was on the cable business and what would happen to those customers. Lo and behold, a few years later, the focus is on internet. And, you know, who are you going to subscribe to? There's only so many options right. in your different markets. Right. Um, so I think, you know, the, this internet business is proving to be a really big bright spot for them. And I think the other thing is you're seeing that they're they're not profitable, as, right? Because once you kind of build the infrastructure to support it, right, to add Exactly. New- and they just went through all of that. They've invested so yeah. much in getting the speeds up so that they can be up to par for watching these movies on your TV. And then what we're seeing on their cable side is they're willing to raise prices, which we know is just going to turn more people away from cable. But I think their thinking is we have a lot of holdouts at this point. How far can we push them? How much can we make off of them? We know that there's not going to be growth, so we may as well boost the margins on that business well and it seems like we have seen customers and consumers willingness to pay up 
for speed, right? And that's ultimately what they're going to be selling. That's what that's what it feels like the cable companies yeah. are upselling is, don't you want everything to download faster? Don't you want to make sure that you can have yes. multiple things going yes. at all times? Yes. Right, you Carol can Master almost imagine yes. you know, the, how the, co- the phone call would go with those customer service agents when you're trying to cancel your cable subscription. It's like, well, wait, are you going to have Netflix? Are you streaming? You might want to get our higher tier right. an internet package, right? So, I mean, there's definitely an opportunity there. And, you know, I, I think they're just realizing, like, this is the future. We kind of have to do it. So what's what's the best way around it? Um, you know, it's interesting, too. And I, I am I'm thinking their acquisition of NBC Universal has it turned out to be a good one, a smart one for them in terms of top and bottom lines? I think so. And I think especially and, and this is a big concern for the industry is that in September of last year, um, some of the uh, concessions they had to make on that deal in order to get it through regulators expired. So now they can kind of utilize that power a little bit more. But on the other hand, there's questions, you know, AT&T is proving this out with their Time Warner deal is what's the advantage of being a conglomerate and owning all this content? And I think that's still a question that we don't really have an answer to because in streaming, you know, maybe it's helpful to control the content because then you can do these direct-to-consumer apps, you can decide your prices, right. as opposed to, you know, not having as much pricing power when you're consolidating everyone else's networks into a cable package because content is so costly. Right. But, you know, I mean, these deals were very expensive and I, I think in Comcast's case, people are generally a big fan of them owning that business. Well, and meanwhile, Meanwhile, elsewhere, I, I love something else you wrote recently about AT&T and DirecTV, and do they really even need each other anymore? More specifically, does AT&T still need uh, DirecTV, which plays into this whole issue as well, it feels yeah, like. Yeah, because with AT&T, you know, we look at how much debt they have. There's already questions about whether... Um, at some point, if they, if they, you know, there's economic disruptions or things don't go as planned in their business, would they have to think about their creditworthiness and their dividend? Do those questions start to arise? And if that's the case, I'm, you know, sitting here thinking, well, why do they need DirecTV? When they bought Time Warner, the idea was this all kind of goes together. DirecTV almost made sense of those deals because it's like combining, you know, Hollywood and and uh, his aspirations, Randall Stevens' aspirations with Hollywood and this connectivity services business that they have. But now that we know that they're going to launch this new app out of the Time Warner division, which is now called Warner Media, they're not launching it out of their direct TV, yeah. pay TV business where you think these services would come from. It starts to beg the question of, well, why do they need direct TV? What's the benefit of it? And, and there are a lot of caveats to that. I mean, it does make money and there's yeah. a lot of subscribers and there's a lot of power there. But on the other hand, I mean, with the, that business declining and causing so many headaches, if AT&T needs some sort of option to raise money and shore up their balance sheet, I mean, why hold on to it? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I just feel like this world in terms of media and content and delivery, it's just changing a lot more faster uh, than we all expect. So uh, many anticipate. collisions. Comcast shares, by the way, up 4.5%. They were up 7%, but still up about 4.5% as we speak. Tara LaChapelle, deals columnist for Bloom- Bloomberg Opinion. Great to catch up with you, as always. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg Radio. like there could be a showdown. Uh, the trade tensions, we're talking about U.S. and China between the two nations, what some say could lead to a tech Cold War, have sparked comparisons to another era in Cold War, that is, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And yet, in making that reference, we could all be making a mistake. Here with more on his Bloomberg Opinion piece about how the U.S. could lose the tech Cold War with China, Andy Brown, his editorial director at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Really a timely column. Good to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Tell us a little bit about your mission here. 
in terms of writing this column? So, yeah, you know, there's, there's so much glib talk around Cold War. This is a tech Cold War, as though, you know, this Cold War could borrow, borrow the playbook from the old Cold War. And, you know, what happened in the, in the old Cold War is that the U.S. spent an enormous amount of time and energy trying to organize a technology blockade of China. Uh, and there are people now who are saying, you know, the new Soviet Union is China. It's not just a, a geostrategic competitor. It's a technology competitor. Dust off the old playbook and see if it works or not. And what I'm saying is this would be a terrible mistake. Why? For, for three reasons. Number one, China's not the Soviet Union in any way, shape, or form. Number two, the lesson from the original Cold War was that it was incredibly difficult to put together a global coalition to, first of all, identify products that you should deny to the Soviet Union, and then to organize a blockade. And thirdly, to the degree that the United States was successful uh, in doing that, it didn't really work out very well. I mean, the, the Soviet Union didn't collapse as a result of being denied technology. It collapsed because of its own internal weaknesses, lack of innovation, chronic shortage of consumer goods, <laughs> bad inept central planning, and so on. The mistake is, if you, if you borrow that playbook, you're going to end up hurting the U.S. economy far more than you are China's. Well, and it certainly feels like we're not at a moment in the world where there's a lot of enthusiasm, certainly from the United States, toward building a global coalition. We're moving away from multilateral anything uh, at this point. The U.S. feels like it's trying to go this alone, right? Yeah, the U.S. Had a, had, a, had a heck of a job trying to persuade even its closest allies right. in NATO to go along with this blockade. There was this rather famous episode in 1962, literally weeks after the Cuban Missile Crisis, okay, uh, when, when, you know, the, the, the doomsday nuclear to- clock came pretty close to midnight. And, and the U.S. says, okay, guys, we have got to stop the Soviet Union from building this oil pipeline to Eastern Europe to supply the Red Army. And basically, the Allies said, forget it. We're not going along with that. You know, at Germany, West Germany had to, basically, you know, the United States had a lot of leverage with West yeah. Germany because it was still supplying a lot, of, a lot of post-war aid. Britain said no. Italy said no. Japan said no. The equipment got to Russia anyway. They built the pipeline. And worse, it, it, the whole episode convinced the Soviet Union, we need self-sufficiency in pipeline technology. And that is exactly what's happened when, when we're seeing in, in terms of semiconductors and other areas, where trying to deny China technology is having exactly that impact. That is such a think an important yeah. point when we look at things like ZTE, uh, you know, pushing back where we almost brought that company to right. its brink of disaster, if you will, right. by you know limiting its supply of components. If anything, it makes the Chinese say, "Hey, folks, we've got to you know make sure we have access to our own or, or produce our own domestic supply chains." Yeah, it'll you know it'll it'll slow them down. There's no question, and that's the real the choke point now. Now on the Chinese economy, it's semi. It's semiconductors, their largest single import, and they right. really want Celsius. They really want to be at the cutting edge. It's going to take them a long time, and obviously, if you if you deny them technology, you slow that. But eventually, they're going to get there. What's also key is, forgive me, that the Chinese economy isn't like the Soviet economy. We need to think about that as we approach these trade oh, completely, negotiations. Oh, completely not. I mean, you know, the, the, you have to remember that the United States was streaks ahead 
of of Russia in almost every area, particularly in 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 computers. I mean, it wasn't even close. Right. You look at what's happening now with China in area after area. Whether you're talking about artificial intelligence, whether you're talking about genomics, whether you're talking about quantum computing, China is right there. I mean, it's either just a little bit behind or at parity. And so, only about thirty seconds left, Andy. What should the U.S. do in this situation? Sort of look a little bit more inward and figure out how to be better, as it were? Be better. <laughs> exactly. That, that's, that's, that's the number one prescription. Focus on your own strengths. Focus on your industrial competitiveness. To the degree to which you try to contain China is a distraction from that core task. But second of all, and you have to, I mean, nobody disagreed in the Cold War that you should deny Russia munitions, right? It was this, these areas of dual-use technology. That was what was up mm. for debate constantly. You have to make sure that you uh, take a very narrow approach to the technology that you want to deny to, 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 the, to, 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 to China. The idea is small yard, high fence, okay? Pinpoint the technologies that you really can't lose and defend those to the death. Andy Brown, editorial director of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which of course was a blockbuster event, happened last year. Coming up again this year. Stay tuned for more details. Really happy you joined us. It's a great column. Great Must stuff. read on the Bloomberg today. Well, as we mentioned earlier in the show, Carol, IBM, one of the biggest gainers across the S&P, gaining the most in a decade, yes. uh, holding those gains up about 9% today after fourth quarter revenue and earnings beat analyst estimates. The cleanest quarter in years is the quote uh, from Morgan Stanley. Garrett DeVink is here with us. He dug into this report. And Garrett, I have to say, we joked to you when you walked in, uh, a rare, really super positive story about IBM and yeah, its financial I mean, I don't performance. Know about super right? positive. I mean, you know, from the market perspective, obviously they were looking for. I think maybe even the, the forecast for 2019 was the more important number here yeah. than just the, the revenue and EPS beat, which is you know that they expect to be profitable again. Um, this year and, and, and to be more profitable than they were in 2018. So, I mean, IBM has been, you know, they had obviously five years of declining revenue last year in 2018. They had a couple quarters where revenue grew again, and then last quarter and the third quarter actually it dropped. And so this 8%, 9% that it's come back today is, is essentially just making up for the third quarter results from three months ago that were pretty bad. So, I, I mean, it, it's, uh, it was a surprise. Uh, the stock market is reacting quite positively, but it's definitely not sort of out of the woods at all for IBM. Wow, you're a party pooper, man. <laughs> um, what's interesting, too, is I think we were talking with um, one of our reporters, too, on the uh, Bloomberg Intelligence team last night, and I thought they were talking about, was it services and cloud or, you know, some of the, you know, what we're seeing is what was neat about this report is that companies are spending on technology. We did mm. get that from this report. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, it, it, it's interesting to sort of... Uh, IBM obviously has a very broad connection yes. to the global economy and to, you know, Fortune 500 companies and, and that kind of thing. So that is definitely a point that could be made. Well, and as you look across, I mean, you have responsibility, I believe, for Google now is in your uh, portfolio. <laughs> um, you know, as you look across sort of the tech world, where does IBM sit? I mean, help us understand, you know, where it sits right. in the sort of 2019 version of, of Techland. So for IBM, it's all about, you know, the last year or so has been talking about cloud, right? And that's, you know, a, means a lot of different things to a lot of people. But obviously, when it comes to that core cloud storage infrastructure, Amazon is the global leader 
then Microsoft, then Google. And then if you go a far way down in that core cloud business, you'll find IBM. And so IBM likes to say, no, no, we do a lot of different things. We are a cloud leader. It depends how you slice and dice it. But when you talk to anyone who knows anything about IT, I mean, IBM is not a leader in sort of that core important part of the cloud market. They obviously bought Red Hat last year to sort of come in from the side and try to outflank some of those other competitors. And they'll actually be selling to companies like Microsoft and Google once that, if that deal does close at the end of 2019. It is expected to, right? In the second Yeah, there's no no clear indication. There's no, you know, credible reports that other bidders are going to come in. But this is a big deal. It's one of the largest tech deals ever. I think $33 billion was the number and it will not close until the second half of 2019 yeah i mean that felt like and i think we talked to you about it when it happened i mean sort of a bet the farm sort of deal i mean this this would be if if it's successful or if it's not this may be you know what jenny rometty is remembered for yeah and i mean tenure. she was initially being remembered for five years of revenue decline right. so i mean it definitely gives the company you know gives um the ceo a new shot at really re- reinventing what's going on it, it, we'll have to see exactly how the ibm culture and the red hat culture get together though gary does it have to be about the cloud and it's interesting you mentioned microsoft uh, amazon forgive me is the biggest player here and they're Web services business, 2017 revenue is about $17.5 billion. And IBM kind of groups it together, technology services and cloud. How much is their cloud business it, right now? It's difficult to know. I mean, because of how IBM reports its numbers, if you want to compare it to exactly what AWS or Amazon's does, I mean, it would be much less than that $17 billion. But if you include all the services and consulting and even some of the hardware IBM classifies technically as cloud um, revenue, it's all thrown it, together. It, 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 that's why they can claim to be such a large cloud player when most people would say they're not. But this is where the growth is going to be. I mean, this is where companies should be focusing on. Yeah, yes? I mean, absolutely. If you think about it, you know, how business is going right now, I mean, there should be plenty of room for all of these players to go and, and jump into this, this multi-billion dollar cloud. business. And, and that's what the Red Hat acquisition is about. Red Hat is not necessarily a, a, a cloud provider like Amazon, but it sells a lot of software and services that help people use open source technology to set up their own clouds. Garrett DeVink, uh, one of our key tech reporters looking at IBM today, up uh, just less than 9% now as we are uh, only about... Uh, 36 minutes away from the close of trading. It was up as much as 10%, really holding those gains on a strong report, uh, as I mentioned before. The cleanest quarter in years, according to Morgan Stanley, and that's what it takes to drive IBM up uh, the most in a decade, apparently, Carol. Right. Stock's up 17.5% so far this year, and we're talking about a dividend on this company of about 4.7%. So, yeah, this is definitely one of the outperformers in today's session. Who's right? Who's wrong? Yeah, it's hard to say who's right, who's wrong uh, in this back and forth uh, in terms of getting the government reopened, the fight over the wall, President Trump. Uh, versus the Democrats right now and the Republicans uh, also in this fight. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about this as investors uh, kind of keep a watch on the news out of Washington. Brad McMillan also keeping a watch. He's chief investment officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, $156 billion in assets under management. He joins us from Waltham, Massachusetts. Hey, Brad, good to uh, have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. I don't know. How do you kind of take into account what's happening in Washington, the back and forth, and what it means potentially for the impact on the economy and what that ultimately might mean for investments? 
Well, I think you have to look at what's going on as, A, something we've seen before. I mean, we've seen shutdowns before. Yes, they do do damage. Yes, this is in historically unprecedented territory. But once it's over, it's pretty much going to be over, and the damage is going to be limited. So I'm not, just, I'm not too worried about it yet. When do you get worried? Well, I'll tell you, the real, the real thing that bothers me about where we are right now with the shutdown is this is over something that's pretty easily solved and pretty minor in the big scheme of things. The real test is going to come when we hit the debt ceiling, when the, when that, when the debt ceiling goes back into effect at the end of March. Then some hard decisions are going to have to be made, and this really doesn't bode well for the government's ability to deal with that. That's yeah. when things get ugly. That's crucial. And I think we go from one fight potentially to another fight. And we'll have to see whether, you know, the polarization that we've seen in Washington, the dysfunctionality that we're seeing, you know, it just gets worse and worse. So it does Dysfunctionality. Wonder. Is that a word? I think so. Okay, good. Sounds uh, good. You were looking at me like, did she, was no. she, she making up words again? <laughs> I love it. Um, anyway, but it, you do wonder whether or not it's just going to get worse and worse and what this means, you know, ultimately, do we get anything done that could be helpful to the country, helpful to our economy. Well, that's the thing. I mean, right now, the best possible take on the shutdown right now is it's going to force kind of some kind of way to come to an agreement between two parties that disagree very much. I would much rather have it happen now and get sorted out in one respect or another than have to wait for the debt ceiling. So I think that's the best possible way to look at it. The worst is this is a warning sign, and it really will get worse. But we're not there yet. So, Brad, ultimately, you know, markets do rely to some extent on sentiment and feel. And while it doesn't seem to have happened in a broad way yet, at some point, we're going to start to see more and more and more stories of people's lives being affected either directly or, you know, someone you know or someone you know, someone you know, someone you're related to. Does that ultimately have an effect and does it happen relatively soon that, you know, these real tales of woe, you know, start to weigh on people and and their confidence, as it were? We can actually track that. And you're absolutely right, Jason. The way I've been watching that is through the consumer confidence surveys. We saw, for example, the uh, conference boards survey that came out shortly, not that long ago, we saw that current confidence was still pretty strong, but we saw expectations drop significantly. And in fact, the gap between the current confidence and expectations for the future was about as large as we've ever seen it. And that's something that's really concerning. because That says that when confidence does roll over, it could drop fast. And then when you look at the University of Michigan survey that just came out, you saw a big drop in current conditions, and you saw a bigger drop in expectations. So that suggests it might actually be happening. So I think that's exactly what we do need to watch for, and we are starting to see signs that it's happening. So what are you telling clients at this point, Brad, in terms of strategy? Any adjustments uh, for, be it the market environment, the economic environment, the political environment? We've already said to clients that, you know, if you're concerned about the pullback at the end of last year, you should be de-risking. You know, we didn't think that that was something that would, um, we didn't think that would be an extended significant drawback, and indeed we're seeing, you know, a pretty good partial recovery. And so we're not asking anybody to do anything differently, but we are asking people to take account of where they are personally. And if you need to pull back a little to ride it out, that's what you need to do. And so what do you tell clients uh, in the meantime, Brad, just sort of stay, you know, 
stay on it? And is there anything that you're starting to hear from an earnings perspective, from CEOs speaking, that might make you change your mind on the impact or the timing of the impact? Well, when you look at the CEOs, I mean, we've we've heard a lot of commentary about how earnings have been dropped, earnings estimates have been dropped by the most since 2011. And, you know, I look at that and I say, okay, that's fine. But again, that reflects analyst sentiment, and analysts are human too. They're as much affected as anybody else. But historically, what you see is that they drop them down and companies talk it down, but then it's not that bad. So I don't think it's actually showing up in earnings. I think we'll actually do better than expected. You know, as far as clients go, this is something that we still expect things to recover and actually do pretty well this year. In the absence of something worse, I think that's still the best, the most probable case. All right, Brad, thank you so much. Brad McMillan, he's Chief Investment Officer over at Commonwealth Financial Network, $156 billion in assets under management with us from Waltham, Massachusetts on the phone there. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And we are definitely driving higher. Just a few minutes left uh, in today's trading session. Just about 11 minutes to go. We're off our worst levels of the session, higher across the board. It is time for the drive to the close. John Ingress is president and CEO at Cognios Capital. With us from Leewood, Kansas, John also manages the Cognios Market Neutral Large Cap Fund. It, by the way, beating just about all of its peers over the past five years with a nearly 4% return on average annually. Hey, nice to have you uh, once again with us, John. Um, Tell me about, take us to Kansas, go out for dinner. What are people talking about? Well, it's the number one story around here is interest rates. It's what's got most people confused about what a rising rate environment might do to their portfolio. And what do you think it's going to do to their uh, portfolio? What are you advising them when they raise that worry with you? Well, we've we've had this question so many times that we've written a paper recently <laughs> called Pick Your Poison, and we put it on our website, Cognos.com, but I, I can summarize it very quickly. Really, we think that you need to consider that the yield curve itself has three main anchor points. Most people are familiar with the first two, the Fed funds rate, overnight rate, and the 30-year treasury rate, the long-term debt rate. But the third major anchor point is the yield on equities, because stocks, just like bonds, have a yield. Today, the S&P 500 is yielding 5.8%. And when you consider all those three things together, uh, the main implication is that as that first one, the Fed funds rate increases over time, it affects those other two. And there's really only a couple of ways this can play out. And so as you look across, especially we're into at least the early part of earnings season here, John, how uh, setting interest rates aside for a second, what are you hearing from companies that either gives you confidence or maybe a little bit of pause about where the market goes from here? Yeah, well, what we're what we don't. We don't listen much to what folks are saying. We look at what they're doing, and corporate profits have not really been increasing on a cash basis for the past few years. Um, We hear lots of talk about growing net income. 
Um, and in some cases, net income, the gap version of profits is growing, but cash profits aren't. But for this one-time impact that we had at the beginning of last year from the from the uh, from the tax reduction uh, program. So, you know, other than that, we think unless unless corporate profits rise by another 15 to 17 percent in the next few years, right. stock prices may very well fall from here. Hey, I'm curious, too, with uh, some of the volatility we've seen, the sell-off in uh, late December, and then, of course, the bounce back. Has that caused you to change any of your portfolio holdings? Uh, have you added to any positions as of late? Well, our portfolio, because it's quantitatively driven, really does the same thing regardless of what the market's doing. So the answer to that is no. But the one thing I think that is obvious is that the big impact, the big volatility in the markets came from this idea that rates are going to rise and it, and it changes people's opinions on what they ought to own and how they should own them. I know that uh, just briefly, because we've got to go listen to the president in just a second, L Brands is one of your uh, big holdings just in about 20 seconds. Uh, You staying put on that one? How do you feel about it? Well, we really let the models tell us what to do because it's all quantitative driven, but we're generally long stocks that pay a 7.2% or earning a 7.2% cash flow yield and short stocks that generate a 3.3% cash flow yield. So long companies that make a lot of money relative to the stock price and short ones that don't. We think over time that'll work out well. John, thank you so much. John Ingris with us. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.